Welcome to the Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon. Calvary meets in the Joppa Falston area between Baltimore and Bel Air, and our pastor is Josh Plantholt. Come join us on a Sunday. Our service info is at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. And now, here's this week's teaching. Happy Lord's Day. I'd like to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 14. We are going to pick up at verse 6. Then I saw another angel. That word in the Greek is angelos, and it means messenger. Then I saw another messenger flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. So last time when we preached these section of verses, what a joyous joyous passage we see that no matter how much sin be present in a culture, God's gospel invitation is available to us all. What a beautiful passage. And I got to talk about love and grace and we had the warm fuzzies. However, (laughs) that is not the only messenger sent in Revelation chapter 14. There are going to be many messengers sent with many messages throughout this chapter. And most of them are very heavy and very scary. So this brings us now to verse 8, our second messenger. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Let's pause here. The city of Babylon is a major theme in the book of Revelation. And this is the first time Babylon is mentioned in Revelation. And isn't it fascinating? The first time we are introduced to this great and evil opponent of God, this great and evil city, it has fallen down and has been destroyed. We have much to discuss about Babylon when the time comes, but for now, isn't it curious that such a big portion of Revelation is introduced to us in a way as a city in ruins? I believe God has introduced the city of Babylon to us this way to remind us that even man's greatest, most crowning achievements are nothing before God. That all of the world's weapons, all of the world's tanks and warships and missiles and infantry, if they all aimed at the Lord, (laughs) they would be as insignificant to him as a dying gnat. And Babylon, this magnificent city, the city that defies God, like the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, it is introduced to us as absolutely no threat before him. In fact, it is so below him, it's introduced to us as already defeated. 
If you can recall the story of uh, the Tower of Babel from the early chapters of Genesis, man was building a tower so high to rival the God of heaven. It was ascending into the clouds, and it says God came down to look at it. It was so small, he had to pull out his magnifying glass to see it. Isn't that cute? They're building something. And that's how Babylon is introduced. Now also notice how Babylon intoxicates and poisons the nations. It says they drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Here's the warning. Sexual immorality, sexual sin, is the liquor that often leads to apostasy. If Satan wants to corrupt you, your family, your kids... A society into blatant, outright rebellion against God, he often uses sexual sins to do it. And notice that the city that is drunk on sexual sins is introduced as fallen, fallen. And chiefly because it's already under the judgment of God, because a culture built on sexual sin will come under the judgment of God. But also, one of the reasons I believe is because a culture given to sexual sins like Sodom from Genesis again is bound to fall anyways. There's a book called Sex and Culture written by an Oxford social uh, anthropologist named J.D. Unwin written in 1934. It's a 600-page book summarizing his seven volumes on the topic of sex and culture. In the book, Unwin examines data from 86 different societies and civilizations to see if there is any relationship between sexual freedom and the flourishing of cultures. Meaning, he wanted to see how sexual revolutions impacted society. And after correlating the data of 86 different cultures, like Rome, Athens, Greece, all these... All of these societies, the man thought, could never fall. (laughs) After examining 86 of these cultures, their rise and fall, this is what he concluded, quote, If total sexual freedom was embraced by a culture, that culture collapsed within three generations to the lowest state of its flourishing. Unquote. Which Unwin describes as inert and at a dead level of conception, and is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. At this level, the culture, quote, is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with a greater social energy, unquote. Here's the point. A culture that abandons and stops valuing modesty, chastity, purity, the nuclear family, and gender roles, these cultures always fall. And this falling is both the judgment of God and a culture committing suicide. A culture that abandons sexual purity for promiscuity, they will fall. And we know this because they always have. And we know this because Revelation tells us they always will. Now thinking of us in America, 
we're living in a culture that is full speed ahead in our sexual revolution, are we not? And surprise, surprise, no surprise, we're falling. We are falling down as a country. Our families are falling apart. Our health care is falling apart. Our school systems are falling apart. The family is falling apart. People are addicted to drugs. People aren't having kids. Our dollar's worth next to nothing. It's all falling apart. But as God's people, we are to be salt of the earth. We are to preserve cultures, which means we may be in a culture that is committing suicide, but we don't have to participate in that suicide. As salt and light, the church, we need to refrain from all pornography. We need to refrain, uh, uh, we, we need to be aware of personal modesty. There's a reason I don't wear my yoga pants here. I don't want to tempt any of you. <laughs> oh, gosh, if you want nightmares, baby. Uh, we need to give honor to charity, chastity, and purity. So as Babylon has fallen, fallen, it is introduced to us as fallen. We can learn from this. In regards to sexual sin, that if we too are in a culture that is falling from sin, then for the love of God and neighbor, for the love of, if we want to use uh, the, 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 the early American terminology, for God and country, we must rebel against that culture and not participate in its suicide. Because not only will we be helping aiding a culture's own suicide, we will also be provoking the judgment of God. Verse 9. <clears throat> and another messenger, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength, into the cup of his anger. I don't want to drink God's cup of anger, do you? <laughs> the third messenger reveals that if anyone worships the beast or receives the mark of the beast, they will come under the wrath of God. And this is referring to something that is going to happen in the future, but we don't want to miss the, dismiss the message that's for us either. You see, at the heart of, of what this messenger is getting at thus far is the theme of allegiance. It's the same theme that Elijah has said to the prophets of Baal, in front of the prophets of Baal. Either you're for Baal or you're for God. Choose. Choose this day whom you serve. Do not go limping between two different opinions. Do you serve Yahweh or Baal? And here we see, do you serve the Lord of glory or do you serve Satan? Because there is no third option. There is no middle. <laughs> Now, there's also a play on words here. Do you notice we have two cups of wine? And the, the, the play on words means here that those who drink of the cup of sexual sin from Babylon will also drink the cup of God's wrath in full strength. And so we must choose. We must choose. And especially as parents, we have to choose for our households. Mothers and fathers, it is your job to lead your children. 
It's not the schools. It's not the governments. It's not your friends. It's not softball. It's not flag football. It is your job. And you must choose whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You must choose how to lead your household. And then it says, cheery passage today, huh? Uh, And then he says, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. We're done reading. For the last 35 years, this church has been preaching, not thematically. We don't preach themes. We preach expositionally through books of the Bible. You'll notice when you go to some churches, they'll be like, welcome to our uh, six-week series on joy, you know, and they'll have a cool PowerPoint slide, and the pastor looks, he's thin, congratulations, and, uh, you know, you have, it's, it's very attractive. Welcome to eight weeks on missions, and why at the end of this, I'm going to tell you we need your money, and then, you know, but they have these themes that... Uh, And nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with themes. Galatians is a theme. Uh, There's themes preached all throughout the Bible. That's just not what we do here. We, we, We preach verse by verse because I believe verse by verse creates the most well rounded saint. Because what happens when I start reading Romans 1? You know I'm going to have to get to Romans chapter 2. (laughs) And what happens when I start preaching through 1 Corinthians one day? You know I'm going to get the head coverings and women's gender roles and household roles. I have to get through those things. You can't hide from any of it, which is why I love it. Because sometimes you're getting a back massage and sometimes you're popping pimples. But you're going to get all of it. I love that. Now that being said, (laughs) there comes a time in verse by verse preaching that we come to these difficult passages. And today is a truly heavy passage. Today's passage emphasizes the reality of hell. So you know what we're going to do today? We're going to talk about hell. But before I do that, I want to draw from an example of history. And for those of you that haven't figured out by now, I love history. I love it so much. Uh, And one of the periods I'm personally interested in is the early early American history. And one of the characters that fascinates me the most from the early American history is Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was an odd duck, really strange. He was also brilliant. And you'll notice brilliant people often are a little odd anyways. Uh, And he, he definitely fit that category. Do you know he wrote the Declaration of Independence at 33 years old? Maybe the greatest piece of writing that ever came out of this country. He he, he wrote it 33 years old. He was a young man. Now, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. He, He was a deist of sorts. But he was fascinated with the story of Jesus Christ. And Jefferson, he wrote so many different things. But he only ever wrote two religious works. And fascinating, he didn't publish either of them. Have you ever find you're having a hard time putting your thoughts together, so you have to write it out? And when you write it out, it becomes clear? 
He's one of those people that would write it out to have it make sense. Well, he wrote two different works, uh, religious works. The first in 1804 called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. We know it exists. We have no copies of it. None of them have survived. The second is made in 1820 called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And we do have a copy of this one. And in this work, what Jefferson did was he took a copy of the New Testament and he kept the sections that he liked and the stories and the sections that he didn't like. He took a razor blade and he cut those paid pieces of the Bible out. And then he'd glue the pieces he liked back together. Uh, and so what he ended up doing is he cut out all the hard sayings he disagreed with. He cut out all of Jesus' miracles because that's just something barbaric people used to think. He cut out the resurrection because that was a miracle. Uh, and all he was left with was a cut and glued version of the New Testament that he agreed with. And the point is, many Christians do not bring, many Christians may not take a razor to their Bible, but they do the same exact thing in their mind. They like what God says about love. And cut out what he says about homosexuality. They like what he says about peace. And cut out what God says about wrath. Oh, my God's a God of love. He would never. Have you read the other half of the book? And for today's teaching, they like what God says about heaven. But they reject what God says about hell. If I said, the Lord's laid it on my heart. I want me and you to eat dinner together every night for a year. Now, not that you could handle it, but just, you know, think with me here. Now, imagine we ate 300, we were going to eat 365 dinners together starting tonight. However, I informed you that one of the 365 dinners will be poisoned. If that was the case, you should decline my offer. Because if even one of the meals is not safe, then none of them can be trusted. Correct? In the same way, if there is one verse in the entire Bible that cannot be trusted, if there is one doctrine in the entire Bible that is not true, then none of it can be trusted. How are you supposed to build your life upon something that is flawed, that is wrong, that is an error. You can't, because you can't trust it. You know, thinking of Tristan, if the wings of a plane work 95% of the time, you'd never get in an airplane. How much more importantly than for our own souls? If we, if you mentally have to take a razor to the Bible in our minds and cut out the things we don't like, we're not really believing God the way that he describes himself, now are we? You actually are believing in a version of God that you have created. That is not God. That is not the genuine article. And that is very, very dangerous grounds. If you can take some of what God says here and throw away a handful of things he says there, you have the right to do that. The Christian police aren't going to kick your door down and go, believe, but 
What you can't do is stand before God Almighty on Judgment Day and claim that you believed in Him. Because you did not. Either this book is telling the truth or it is not. And here we are talking about the eternity of hell. And you don't have to believe it. And you could still believe 95% of everything else I say and go, well, it's got a lot of good morals in it. Maybe you throw this out. But the reality is, if you're willing to throw your belief in hell away because you don't like it or it doesn't fit your standard for what you think God should be, you might as well throw the rest of the book out with it. Because if God's word cannot be fully trusted, how could we fully trust the God of the Bible? And on the contrary, if this book is the word of God, and it is, <laughs> then believers must do everything in their power, our power, to keep people from this eternal judgment. Remember, it is Jesus who spoke more of hell than he did of heaven. It is Jesus who spoke more of hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. <laughs> because Jesus, more than anybody, knew it was real. And he gave his life to keep us from it. He didn't die to keep us from some small slap on the wrist. He knew what was coming. And so to deny the doctrine of hell is to call Jesus a liar. If the doctrine of hell was to be swept under the rug and thrown away, or ah, this one's not for me, why did Jesus take it so seriously? And why is the last book of the Bible pleading with us of its reality? Because it's real. Every day, millions of people are stepping into eternity, and some are heading to heaven and many are heading to hell. And it is our job. It's my job. It's your job as the church to warn them. Even the most evangelistic passage in the entire Bible, people put on those rainbow wigs and carry John 3.16 cardboard cutouts. Even John 3.16, the most evangelistic, lovely passage maybe in the entire Bible, at the core of that is the reality of hell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, burn. Even John 3.16 is rooted in hell. And God and God's people who so love others, to believe in the doctrine of hell does not make you cruel. It does not make you hateful. On the contrary, if you believe the Bible and don't hold to the doctrines of hell, it makes you a coward. It makes you loveless. Because if you take God at his word and believe it, it makes you passionate about other people's souls. It makes the person who stabs you in the back, yeah, that hurts. But I don't want to see him burn. It makes you forgive as you have been forgiven. It changes everything about your life. 
It makes you lavishly, self-sacrificially love people because you know the cost of rejecting the Messiah. The third messenger of today's text reveals the horrible reality of rejecting the first messenger, the gospel. So here is the reality of our situation. There is a God in heaven who created all things. And he is a good God. And he is a just God. And man, you know God made us. (laughs) We are his creation. And his creation in Genesis chapter 3 has rejected God's law. We rejected God. And God, instead of destroying us, which is what we deserved, instead of destroying his creation because they deserved God's justice, they deserved God's judgment, he decided to send somebody to save them. His only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to pay for the judgment that we deserved. Now whether you like it or not, God has provided one way for humanity to get into heaven. And that is to accept that one way that God has provided for us to get into heaven. Now you don't have to accept this message at all. But the reality is that if you accept Jesus Christ as your sacrifice for your sins, you will be saved. Because someone else paid for the judgment that you deserved. Someone has to pay for your sins. There is no option in which your sins disappear. Someone has to pay for them. They cost something before a just God. And there's only one person who has pockets deep enough to foot the bill. And it's the man who died on the cross for our sins. That is the only way out of your sinful debt. It is the only way out of the wrath that you deserve. And you don't have to accept it. But if you reject Jesus Christ, then you are also rejecting the only way of salvation. And you then are choosing to pay your own bill. And you will come under the full wrath of God Almighty for the penalty of your sins. And the penalty for rejecting God is fire. Eternal fire. That is the wages, the cost of your sin. And in this place of eternal fire, there is torment, agony, that lasts forever and ever. It does not end. And part of the reason for this is because when God created the soul, he created something that was last that would that was supposed to last forever. God wanted to spend eternity with you. <laughs> and so he created your soul to live in eternity. And when a man had sinned, instead of tossing our souls forever into this place of judgment, in his infinite mercy, he provided a way for us to be saved. But we have to accept it. We rejected God and we can reject him again. And accepting Jesus, you have to understand, coming into salvation is so easy. (laughs) Because God loves us so much. Has he not set the bar of salvation so low? Jesus already did all the hard work. 
He already did it all. All you have to do is accept it. It's called grace. You know what grace is? It's a gift. You say, yes, I take Jesus. Done. <laughs> it's not like God made hell and then made entry into heaven a blindfolded triathlon and a blizzard. <laughs> Jesus says in John 3 that coming to salvation is so easy. All we have to do is look at him in faith. Do you realize you don't even, you ever heard someone say, you need to pray this prayer with me if you want to accept Jesus. I hate to tell you in the Bible there is no special prayer. Because you don't need the perfect words. You don't need a special prayer. You don't need to do a dance. You don't need to go on a pilgrimage. You don't need a holy man. All, all, all you have to do is look and believe. So easy. But I will warn you. It is at this point that many fall away. Think of the parable of the sower. How many people receive this word? And then the cares of the world choke them out. The distractions of life choke them out. The worries they have choke them out. Or think about it. Enter by the narrow gate. For broad is the road that leads to hell. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Strive, Jesus says, to enter it. And so, yes, you look on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and then you run. You run like something's chasing you with a syringe of poison. You run to Christ. This is what Paul says, I have finished the race, I have run it well, essentially. We run to God. Jude tells us to contend, to agonize towards Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us to contend, to fight. If you've ever seen uh, football players and, and the linemen, they all run into each other, right? And they're just like sumos. Arr, they're pushing each other. That's what it means. Push your arm through. Push through. Make it through into Christ. And so please hear me. If there's one thing... If there's one thing you do with your life, then come to believe in Christ and follow him. And chiefly, yes, because God loves you. That is why you go to Christ, because God loves you. He'll love you more than anyone else could ever dream to love you. And yes, because God is good, he is altogether lovely. He decided to make sunrises for us because he's wonderful. And he made bacon taste like bacon. He's glorious and beautiful. And he made wine make us feel good and sex feel. He didn't have to do any of that. Could have all just been vanilla wafers. You know, whatever. He, he's a good God. And yes, because he made you to know him. You ever have that pit where you're never satisfied? Even when you're having the best time, it ends and there's nothing left. Go, is this it? This is how I'm supposed to feel? No. Because God made you with a hole that can only be filled with him. We follow God because he's good, because he's lovely, but also because of the alternative. That rejecting God's message leads to hell. And hell is a very real place with very real fire, with very real burning, with very real eternity, forever and ever and ever. And whether you like it or not, 
It has zero impact on the reality that God is in charge. (laughs) Please hear me. God does not need your approval in order to make something that is. If you don't like hell, it doesn't go away. He's not consulting your opinion on the matter. He is the God most high and he chooses what is. So no matter how you feel about it, if the Bible is true and it is, then hell is a real place. And it is a place of not just some torment, of eternal torment. And verse 10 of today's passage is one of the most sobering verses in the entire Bible. You see, I, I used to think, and maybe you've heard it, heard it said too, that hell is hell because it is a place filled with the absence of God. Has anyone ever heard that before? That's not true. That's not true. It says, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receive a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in underline the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those who are in hell forever will be tormented with fire forever in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus. Understand, Jesus is not just aware of hell. By the way this passage reads, it's almost as if he is the one who stokes the flames forever. That word, in the presence, quote unquote, of the Lamb, that word means face to face. Every person who is thrown into the lake of fire will be thrown in there face to face with the one with whom they had rejected The torment of hell will be done by and before the Lord of glory forever. Now at this point, many people say, well, I can't worship a God like that. I can't believe in a God like that. You can reject him. How you feel holds no bearings on who God is. People will be in hell and they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will weep and they will gnash their teeth. And day and night they will be haunted by their memories. Day and night forever they will be tormented. Not only by the fire that never ends, but by their memories. By the reality of what fools they were for rejecting the gospel, the good news, the way of salvation. Remember this is in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember the rich man crawls out to Father Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, essentially I'm thirsty. Send that servant boy, Lazarus. Let him dip his finger in water that I may get but a drop. That will satisfy me. (laughs) And what did God say? What did he say? You had many good things in your life. He reminded him of the opportunities he had and how he rejected God at every turn. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking of sexual sin in hell, says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You know, just so we're clear, that's not literal. I don't want anyone to come in here blind, you know, tomorrow with your blood coming out of their face. But, but it, 
It means do whatever it takes. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is Jesus. And if your right right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes into hell. Jesus is telling you, do whatever it takes. Do whatever is necessary. Don't wake up in hell. If you need to chop off your arms, then chop them off. If you need to throw away your cell phone, your computer, your TV, your laptop, you need to stop drinking because you can't handle it. You need to find a new job because it brings the worst, worst out of you. If it's causing you to sin, do whatever is necessary to put your sins as far away from you as you can. If you have sexual sin in your life, cut it off. If you struggle with greed or jealousy or bitterness or whatever, do whatever you have to do. But dear God, do it now while there's still time. And people think it's hard to go to hell. No, it is not. It's the easiest thing in the world. All you have to do is nothing. Coast on. Live your life the way you want, how you want, when you want. Coast on with no authority. Keep living for yourself. But I promise you, it is not worth the cost. You know, it's said before your judgment that God brings every single thing you've ever done to light. Before you step into heaven or before you step into hell, God essentially presses play on your entire life. And every thought you've ever had, everything you've ever whispered in secret, every partner you've ever had that no one knows about, it all will be played before God and his court. God examines and judges before you. It is very clear to me as I study the scriptures that every person in hell will be tossed in hell with a perfect memory. They will remember not only every sin, but also every opportunity they were given to repent and be saved. And so I call you today, while there is still time, whatever you do with your life, do not end up in hell. Because this sermon will haunt you for the rest of eternity. Commit yourself to the Lamb. Come to Christ and live. And save yourself from the wrath to come. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And build your life upon him. I'm calling you to believe. The Bible is calling you to believe, to commit yourself, to resolve yourself. I, I, I sang this the, a little while ago, and I'm not going to sing it for you today because I love you, because uh, I can't sing. But it's that song, I have decided to follow. Oh, there we go. Uh, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Right? Now you know I'm not worship me. But it's a resolve that happens within ourselves. When Joseph was pulled into that room by Potiphar's wife for a good time, he said, no, I will not do this before my God. You have to decide who you will serve. 
And when the sin comes, it would be easier to chop off your arm than engage in that activity. You must fight it at all costs. We are playing with the highest stakes imaginable, your eternal soul. Jesus says, do whatever it takes. You have a sin you haven't been able to get rid of? Are you doing whatever it takes? Really? Really? Do whatever it takes. Remember again, hell is a very real place, but also remember, it is a place that none of us have to go to. (laughs) All you have to do is come to Christ and accept the forgiveness that is had in Jesus and follow him. And so two very quick things here. First, if you are not right with the Lord, you are not confident that you are spared from the fires of hell, but you want to be, then repent of your sins. You know what that means? It means throwing them away, (laughs) cutting them off. Turning from them and turning to God. You're sleeping outside of marriage? Stop. You're looking at pornography? Stop. You're getting drunk? You're getting high? Stop. And let me tell you, you're mistreating your family. You're belittling your wife. You're belittling your husband. Sin. Stop. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life upon him and his word and be saved. Hell is a very real place, but the good news is no human has to go there. Believe. Salvation is that easy. You just have to look to Christ and say, that's what I want above everything else. And all the hard work's already been done by him. There's this thing when we get saved, we think we have to do, 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 do. I better go feed the hungry and I better go sell my stuff. Just believe. Jesus already did all the work. You just have to believe enough to build your life upon him. Secondly, if you are right with the Lord then please be aware of the reality of hell for others. It is a horrible place of eternal suffering. And let that drive you to missions. It is a horrible error to not believe in hell. But it is an even worse error to believe that hell is real and to not do anything with it. I beg you. I beg you. Tell people, warn people, give them the good news that Jesus came to save us from the coming wrath. And please know that this is so important because I can also be one of those people that takes everything personally. (laughs) That as much as you love your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, you hold absolutely no responsibility for whether they receive the gospel or not. Have you ever tried to get someone to just get it? (laughs) And they reject, and they reject, and they reject. And we can think there's something wrong with the messenger. It's not about you. It's not your message. (laughs) 
If they reject your message, they're rejecting the one who gave you the message. It's not about you. Salvation, the scriptures say, salvation belongs to the Lord. You are not responsible if they accept or reject the message, but where you are responsible before God Almighty is to be a faithful messenger and to deliver the message that he has given you. And that means to share the gospel. To tell them of a savior that loves and saves. If hell is going to be filled with people that you know, at the very least, do not let them go unwarned, unloved, unserved, and unprayed for. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but the message of salvation is to be given through you. That's your job, so deliver it, and deliver it with an urgency. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we, 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 we beg you. We beg you. We plead with you. That you would use us, oh Heavenly Father, to share your message and to help us to share it effectively. We ask for a mighty outpouring of your Spirit that you may start to grip the people in our lives and bring them to you. And God, do not let us be cowards. Let us speak boldly. Let us speak honestly. Not because we're heartless, but because we're, we're being selfless. We're telling people the hard truths. Please, God, use us. And God, we pray for those in here that do not know you. Dear God, dear God, grab them today. That we may spend the rest of eternity together with you in your glory. Please, God, be with your people here today. Grow us in number today. And send us out with a new zeal, God. With your holy fire, the fire of your spirit. To save people from the fire of your wrath. When if anyone here needs special prayer, we ask that they may go and speak to the people by the side doors. Please, God. Please, please, please move mightily. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, all who agreed said, Amen. Let's stand and worship. Thanks for joining us for today's message from Calvary, Baltimore. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email with your questions, prayer requests, or just to say hi. Our email address is calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate to support the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. And if you're in the area, stop by on a Sunday morning. For directions and service times, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org. If you can't be here in person, we also live stream on our website and on our Facebook page. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Until next time, as Pastor Josh says, study the word to live the word to share the word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore Weekly Sermon.